Steve here from Production Music Tools. We are very excited to release Symbol Effects Bode in collaboration with our friends at 52Qs.com. This sample collection features 68 unique Bode Simple performances, offering a broad spectrum of timbres, textures, and tones, and is the perfect choice for tension and trailer music. These were performed on a 22-inch stag traditional China Lion cymbal, and every sample has been expertly recorded and performed by composer Dave Croft of 52Qs. Incorporating these top-notch samples into your project is a breeze. Simply drag and drop to create stunning transitions and infuse your mixes with added depth and texture. You can find this pack at productionmusictools.com as part of our sample pack product line. So the same thing with the recipes as, as well. That, that yes, well, there's, there's lots of explanations there and help and chef's notes and whatever else so that you kind of get your head around how it all works. Um, or you can ignore all of that and just follow the steps so that, so that there's, the videos are very, deliberately very short for those, for mm -hmm. people who are impatient just want to get on with it. <laughs> so you've got your DRW open over here, recipe over, over here. I'm hoping that people will stop listening to me very quickly and just want to go and try it. What is happening, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the 52Qs podcast, your weekly insight into all things production and library music. So whether you're simply curious about the industry or working towards a sustainable career with better placements, then you're in the right place. My name is Dave Croft, and I've dedicated my career to writing and teaching production music. So it is so good to have you with me today. And if you find this video helpful, then give it a thumbs up or a five-star review in your podcast app. And be sure to subscribe because I talk about library music every week. Today's episode wouldn't be possible without the incredible support of our member subscribers at 52Qs, who not only keep the channel alive and thriving, but they also get exclusive access to community features like career and industry workshops, music production live streams, office hours, queue breakdowns, feedback sessions, hundreds of hours of video archives, and even opportunities to write for real music libraries. So if this sounds like you and you're really ready to take your career and creativity to the next level, then head over to 52Qs.com. Joining the community is completely free and memberships start at around four bucks a month. Well, if you've been watching my videos uh, for any length of time, and Lord knows the folks over at 52Qs and my full sale students can attest to this, I love me a good metaphor. I mean, I love breaking down complex topics using imagery or situations which are much more relatable. And I may have found a kindred spirit in Philip Johnston of Orchestration Recipes, who joins me today to unpack how he takes advanced musical concepts and makes them much less threatening. I am so excited to welcome Philip Johnston of Orchestration Recipes. And if you've not if you've not heard of Orchestration Recipes, just pause right now, go subscribe to that YouTube channel. Because as I mentioned in the intro, this is a, an entire system and Philip has found a way to make complex musical ideas digestible, friendly, and more importantly, non-terrifying. So when I saw Orchestration Recipes, I knew within the first 60 seconds of that first video, <laughs> Uh, that I had to bring you on the podcast. So Philip, welcome, welcome, welcome to the 52Qs podcast. 
No, Dave, I'm pleased to be here. And um, I don't like driving much. I like it a whole lot more when I'm listening to, to your work too. So oh. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. You you honor me. You honor me. And we're gonna we're gonna talk about orchestration recipes, and I want to talk about like some of your educational philosophies. But first, you know, everybody's career in music is in a, it takes a different path, and the, everybody's on their own career journey. So, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, um, maybe uh, experience, education? I know you're a concert pianist, uh, which is fascinating. Uh, I'm a drummer and a percussionist, so I can't play any more than like two fingers at a time or four if I'm feeling, you know, saucy with my marimba mallets. But um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yes, was chasing the whole concert pianist thing. Um, and the way I'd characterize it is I was very, very good in a field where you need to be very, very, very good, and sometimes the extra very on top of that. Um, and, uh, and, and so it, it, it rhymes with the experience of most other people chasing that. Um, so there was, there was lots of practice and, and conservatoriums and competitions. And, um, uh, and really, the way I, I describe it and what got me composing is, as a classical musician, you are a cover band. Mm. I mean, the whole time. You're, yeah, you're, you're right. No, nobody, yeah. And so you're <laughs> spending all, all your time interpreting other people's notes and, and not even just interpreting other people's notes. There's, uh, there's a fair bit of pressure to recreate pretty much as exactly as what's there as you possibly can. Um, and the, the cynical part of you, well, cynical part of me, started to feel like I wasn't entirely sure what I was for. Um, as I was being, what I knew was, I mean, I was, I was say, Beethoven piano sonata. You practiced it really hard. You performed it, but you know, you're one of 10,000 people who've performed it that year. Um, and if I'm starting a crescendo at bar seven, it's because bar seven says start a crescendo. Um, and so the, the part of me that likes to make things up, um, uh, balked at that a little bit and, uh, and annoyed some, some teachers along the way because I wanted to change things up and spent most of my practice time, because uh, you, you really shouldn't be messing with Beethoven's notes, um, but spent most of my practice time uh, taking little ideas and figurations and then making up your own things built built from that. Um, and, and so that that's really where all that started. It was it was um, a frustration with uh, what, what felt a little bit like paint by numbers. Um, and I'm not I'm saying that knowing that there's a lot of very, very good classical musicians where that absolutely is not their experience. And part of how mm. they bring it alive is it, it's just not that at all. But a big part of being a student is compliance um, you know, with, the, with the dots on the page. And I, I didn't enjoy that so much. Um, so, the, so that's where, where that all started. Um, and uh, started working in original compositions into um, uh, various concerts, which not many people were doing. If you're playing piano, you're playing Liszt and Chopin and Rachmaninoff. Um, and, and the irony there is, of course, that all of those uh, pianists were playing their own works alongside other people's when they were playing back in the day as well. Right. Um, and then down the track, um, uh, got a, uh, did a recording for Warner, and, and they, like lots of other labels, have uh, lots of pianists. Um, but I, I was the only one at the time, I think, who was doing, who was mixing these kind of originals alongside Chopin and Liszt and whatever else. Um, and I'd, I'd like to say that was a, a sparkling recording career. It lasted exactly one album. Um, you know, but it was, but it was, it was, it was good to do it. Um, and it was a point of difference. And it, it really got me thinking about, about composing. So that, that's, that's the, um, uh, kind of traditional side of things. And on the, um, technological side of things, um, that's kind of my father's fault, and I'll explain. Mm. Um, I uh, I'm, was of the generation where um, the kids at school had little game and watches where you could play games, right? And I desperately wanted one. He was heading overseas, and he, he was going to come back with, 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 with a present from time to time. And he came back not with a game and watch, but with a little PC. Uh, it, was, it was an Oric. It had all of 16K of RAM, and I was the first kid <laughs> in, in my school to have seen a PC of any sort. And the message from him was, if you want to play games, that's fine. You've got to code them. 
And in that PC was a little app where you could um, you could write your own music as part of that. It really wasn't very sophisticated. And so if you wanted to uh, indicate what note to play, that was a number, 1 to 12. You wanted to indicate what octave it was in, that was another number you had to type in. And then there was another number that indicated how long the notes were, whether it was polyphonic or not. And, and the point here is that at the end of all of that, your composing was really it was debugging. It was a page full of numbers, and and you you know it might it might play Happy Birthday or, or something like that at the end of four or five hours of work, and it was the beginning of what I think has been an inversion between the effort required to get something done as a composer, and uh, and uh, an output waiting at the end of that, and the ratio of how much time you're spending wrestling with the technology to get it to do anything at all. Um, and then getting uh, some sort of output that you can you can forward on to other people, and so that's a pretty extreme example where it's numbers. Um, you, you forward a little bit, and uh, you'll remember this too, where where we had you know, four track recorders, and you could plug that into your your, your synth, and now you you could actually play what you meant rather than representing it with numbers. But again, it's destructive editing and all of that, um, mm-hmm. and so you really had to be very careful with every take, um, and and certainly incredibly careful with every musical decision. And then down the track, we got the miracle that was Giga Studio, and 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 uh, that the the early VS, I think. It was probably the very first of those, um, and it was the first one that I played with. Um, and prior to that, the synths we were using, if you were playing a French horn, the reason you knew it was a French horn because you had to read the thing because maybe it was an oboe and you couldn't really tell. And now you could tell the instrument yeah. sounded like the instruments. Um, and you know, for the people who are watching this now, who are you know maybe in their teens or early twenties, uh, yeah, I, I'm frustrated with you out of the gate because. It, it, now everything just works, right? And you, yeah, you, you press a key and it sounds like a pizza. Yeah, and it string. just goes. And so the barriers to entry in, in terms of, um, not just in terms of price, but in terms of how long you have to spend uh, fighting with all of this stuff to get the music made that you want to make. It's, it's, it's a complete turnaround. Man, I can hardly wait to see what the next 10 years brings. Although there's a conversation where I have it now about AI that has me a little scared about what the next 10 years might be. Yeah, it kind of feels like the the boulder chasing Indiana Jones. You know, it's just like we all see it coming. It's just how do we avoid it and how do we we get paid on the other side of it? Fortunately, the music has been not very good so far, but, you know, count to 10 slowly. We'll we'll see what happens. Right. Yeah, it's only a matter of time. What what I think is fascinating is, you know, getting into like what are now the modern iterations of what would be like a tracker, like tracker software where you're, you're composing using grids and numbers. It divorces music theory from a keyboard or a fretboard or, you know, and it, and it almost turns it into a series of intervals and parameters. And I see that concept reflected in your educational uh, philosophies as they are uh, presented, do you think that 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 kind of deconstructing music theory and deconstructing music into its base parameters, like like you're seeing the code in the matrix early on, do you think that that gave you a unique perspective? Well, I, I certainly think that uh, what you've characterized there is an alternative way of representing music theory mm-hmm. and an acknowledgement out of the gate that there are lots of alternative ways that we could be representing music theory. And so mm-hmm. that the system that we've inherited um, – it has a lot of advantages. It, it's I, I don't believe a UI designer, if you were designing it from scratch now, would would design music notation the way we have it. I, yeah, I, Phil DeVitri, you know, had modern te- technology that he would change things up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I think there'd be meetings to be had, and I think we can probably we probably do that better. I, I understand why it's resistant to change and, and all of that. Um, but but what's interesting about that though is it means then if there are alternatives possible, 
um, then it's, it's certainly worth exploring those alternatives and acknowledging that each of those alternatives will come with certain benefits and disadvantages. So mm. we'll go back to the core of your question. Um, which was looking at, at music theory itself, probably how it's currently represented. I, I think it, it's been designed to be retrospective. Um, there's certainly no way that if we're looking at capital C classical music theory, that there's no way that the, the likes of um, you know Mozart and Haydn were, were thinking in those terms when, when they were composing. Mm. Um, and so it's a way of analysing things afterwards and it's a way of, make, of rendering it explainable and, it, and it's, it's reductive. And it, it feels a little more like science than anything else. We're trying to characterise a system in a way that's comprehensive and that we that is then transmissible, if you like. Yeah, yeah. And it does that pretty. It does that pretty well. Um, th- there can be inconsistencies. Um, so, uh, it, it, for example, you, you can end up with uh, three or four different ways of describing exactly the same chord, and everything is numbers and letters. Uh, with, with all of this. And uh, and so, uh, for example, the three following chords are exactly the same. If you picture them on the piano, a C major with an added flattened ninth is the same as a C sharp diminished with a major seventh, mm-hmm. is the same as a D flat major minor seventh with a flattened fifth. And so, I mean, that really sounds like that ought to be three very different things. But if you go and nut those out in the piano, that that's it's the same chord. Mm-hmm. And so part of what I was wondering, it, it, there's got to be other ways of explaining this that are perhaps a little more uh, a little more relatable and are not designed so much to characterize systems, but are designed to communicate to students, here's what I need to play, here's what I need to look for, here's what it looks like on the keyboard, which is you know what, what, I'm, what I'm using all the time. Um, and so that, that's where the theory side of orchestration recipes, um, but it didn't start off as a theory thing. So the, the first couple of volumes of orchestration recipes were, were entirely about orchestration. Um, and there, there was there was nothing at all, deliberately nothing at all about harmony. But then I recognised that I, I couldn't keep not talking about that. Yeah, so. yeah, I, yeah. I think for some folks, music theory looms large, like you know, marching hammers in a Pink Floyd movie, right? It's just <laughs> yeah. it's just something that it just gets like hammered into you, and it feels big and scary. And I know we have listeners and viewers right now. We have folks in the community who you know don't necessarily read music. And so understanding music theory beyond just a set of rules and guidelines and everything, and just a bunch of things you have to memorize, I think is super important. Dave, you're talking to one. Yeah. For the, for the longest time, um, because I, I started piano really quite late. I was, at, I was um, in high school when I started mm. playing piano. And, the, and then everything happened really fast. And so three years after my very first lesson, I was performing for my first concerto. And, but it was all too fast for me to get across reading the way I should. And no one knew at the conservatoriums that I was struggling with it. And it was a big part in the end of, of why I ended up making up my own things. Mm. But, but also um, illustrated the fact that there'll be lots of people listening to this who are making uh, phenomenal music and, and don't read because there are other ways of communicating that information. Well, because you don't – like I, I don't read music on the daily. I mean, I, I can yeah. read music, you know, my master's, blah, blah, blah. But when I'm – composing, I'm thinking shapes, harmony, textures, sound, you know, mix, EQ, all of those things, none of which have to do with me putting a dot on a staff, you know, but it's internalized because I'm, I'm, I'm creating in the DAW. And so I, I think that, that orchestration recipes, and again, we're going to, we're going to talk about this here in a second. It's no surprise hearing how you came up through like programming where it, it it removed the notes on a page, dots on a staff 
from it, it. I feel like it kind of untethered those things in your mind and, and to be able to look at complex ideas through more uh, abstract kind of thinking, nonlinear sure. thinking, I guess. If that makes and, sense. and let me just clarify, I, mean, I can read music now, mm-hmm. obviously, and sure. I can read, read quite well, but it, it's been a fight and boy, have I looked for other ways of doing the same thing. Mm. Right. So, And <laughs> back when I was teaching piano, um, was sympathetic to and had a, an unusually large number of students in the studio who didn't read music, weren't interested in learning to read music, were very interested in playing. And those two things are absolutely not mutually exclusive. That's right. That's just, so, a- absolutely. Another yeah. thing, I, I, uh, but before we move on, one of the questions I had for you, because you know you're coming from the educational world. You know you have you have educational books published, like Alfred Publishing. You're 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 a, you're a published concert pianist. Um, but I have struggled with ba- this balancing act of not feeling like I'm enough of a composer because I'm not like doing it full time, and and thinking that I'm somehow less than pro. And I struggled with that for quite a while until I kind of made peace with the fact that I can be I can be both. I can be equal parts professional composer and educator. Is that anything that you've struggled with, especially coming through the conservatory where that can be really, really brutal, you know, where if you're not spending eight hours in the practice room, then you're not you're not really true to your art. No. No, I do understand. Um and I think it's based on I think it's based on mythology. That, mm. um, that musicians are supporting themselves, not just out of the gate, but supporting themselves at all, primarily with music. And that if you can't do that, then you are, you're failing somewhere. Mm. Um, and and I, it, just the way things are structured, it's very likely that for extended parts of your career, it's not going to be keeping the lights on. Um, however, boy, is it not mutually exclusive working on things. Let me just run some names past you now, by the way, <laughs> just, just to address this for a moment. So we've got, we got Borodin. So that with the Russian composer, with there's a large statue of him in Russia, and the statue of him is for his services to chemistry. Doesn't even mention the fact that that, that he that he does music. Um, Charles Eyes was um, was selling insurance until he he won a Pulitzer Prize when he was seventy three. I think is is when um, his overnight success story started. Um, so he'd clearly been doing other things before that. Um, John Cage was working as a graphic designer. Um, Gustav Holtz was famously working as a teacher, and there's been lots of obviously musicians who do that. Um, Rinsky Korsakov was just as proud of his career in the Navy as he was of his composing. And uh, Philip Glass famously was driving cabs in New York City um, even when he was successful. Mm. Um, so, uh, so there's certainly there can be these parallel lives. Did I hear at one stage that, that J.S. Bach was teaching Latin or something? <laughs> dr- ruling his own manuscript paper and a whole bunch yeah. of things that he probably shouldn't have been doing and composing instead. But um, um, yeah, so I think there's the idea that you're not a, you're not a proper, whatever that means, musician, un- right. unless it is paying all the bills and you're doing it 24-7. But you know, there's other careers where people don't yeah. do that too. Yeah, yeah, so. I, I, I totally, I totally agree. You, you, you can, you can do more than one thing. Um, mo- moving on, as far as your approach, and we've talked about music theory, and you have a real uncanny ability to make these complex theoretical concepts, which on paper, just like, let's like you rattled off those different chords. I know that some of our listeners. They were like, oh, oh my God, he's just like saying sharps and flats and, you know, diminished things. Like, I was reading those from my notes, oh, by the hey, way. No, hey, you don't have to, a uh, photographic memory. We don't button. have to know how the sausage is made. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, why do you think traditional school, you know, whether it's high school or college, university or whatever, why do, why do you think they're, they're so just kind of stuck? Like, uh, why aren't more music theory teachers like you? Because I think what I think your approach is uh, is rare. I mean, I, I can't speak to what, what – look, most music 
theory teaching, I think you've got a responsibility to impart um, broadly understood music theory. And so the downside of some of the representations that I make in orchestration recipes is that if you weren't familiar with that term because you'd actually done the course, the terms can be meaningless. Now, mm. once you are familiar with the term within those within that, it's then very useful afterwards because it means you can condense a, a very complicated idea into a you know a phrase or so. Oh, look! And the simple philosophy is they're things I didn't want to have to explain more than once, <laughs> and and so uh, that. With the idea that the people who would be using this would be using this, then they're not trying to um, un understand things in abstract terms or be able to unpack a system. They've got a keyboard or a guitar or whatever in front of them, and at the most basic level, they're trying to answer the question: Hey, what do I play next mm. to get this particular sound? Um, and and music theory in its defence, really, I mean, it does that quite well. It's just that it wasn't designed out of the gate to do that. Is all, and I'm certainly mm -hmm. not proposing that it gets proposed. But if the if the point of the discussion in the first place is to answer that question, hey, what am I supposed to play next? My argument is that you should be starting with what's in front of them and what they're probably already familiar with and comfortable with. Um, and so, as soon as we're in the realms of uh, we start talking about flattening notes and uh, and and, and uh, fifths and thirteenths and elevenths and whatever else, if you're from a jazz background, you'll be thoroughly comfortable with that, and you, you'll just do that in your sleep. Mm. Um, if if you're not, that's bewildering enough that you can just pass it off as this is something I'll never do, and and you just lose interest. Now, if instead you've got chords that that most pianists, for example, are familiar with pretty much out of the gate, so just simple major and minor chords. And then you're using that as uh, as as a, a jumping point with here's the tiny change you need to make to the thing you already know, that that's easy to impart and easy to remember. Um, so so that that's that's logic there. I'm certainly not seeking to replace things. It's not what orchestration recipes was was designed for when it when it first started. It's just that um, there, and I'm happy to talk about that in a bit too. But um, there there were a lot of people who were sending in questions about, hey, what are these chords that you're using mm. in, in these particular orchestrations uh, that gives it that that particular sound? And I, and I realised that sooner or later I had to address that and tried to address it with music theory and then really realised quickly that um, a lot of people just were, were going to tune out. Right. Well, let's talk about orchestration recipes. And for me, in, in, in my teaching and when I teach production music, I, I talk in metaphor nearly constantly <laughs> uh, yeah. because it's a way to connect unknown abstract concepts with, with situations and arrangements. So I talk about how we're chefs. I use cooking metaphors nearly every I've single- I've heard some in your podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah 100%. I'm a chef. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I've talked about, you know, we're just baking cookies and whatever cookie and, and to approach it from like the artisan mentality and all of that. So this is, again, this is when I, I felt like we were a kindred spirits separated by, you know, 24 hours or so or 12 hours of, of time zones. But um, let's talk about orchestration recipes and talk about the different volumes. At, at its core, what are your orchestration recipes. Okay. Look, it's a thing I actually built for myself. I ne never intended originally to be distributing it at all. And it was because I, it, I was trying to improve my own orchestration um, and had done that the the ways that were recommended and, and discovered that, at least for me, but I suspect for a lot of the people, it doesn't quite work the way we're hoping. So I'll give you a couple of examples now. And so one of the things I tried to do was, was like so many people do, is that you say, well, what I'll do is I'll start with some master orchestrators and I'll deconstruct it. 
I kind of work backwards. And so, you know, you load up your right of spring and some John Williams and um, some Reveal. <laughs> yeah, I pulled down the Rimsky-Korsakoff's orchestration book. I'm like, yep. Well, there's I, that, that, yeah, yeah and, right. I, and I got way in over my head. <laughs> yeah. That's really but, dense. But what will happen with scores is that you can, um, you can certainly see things that become evident. So, for example, there might be John Williams where you'll hear a particular woodwind run. You'll think, oh, that's fantastic. And then you'll, you'll unpack it and you, and, and you can represent it in terms that's easy enough that you think, well, hey, I can do that. But what is not apparent in that moment is that that, that, that run has been set up by a whole lot of other mm. um, magic and alchemy and, and, uh, and, and things that were not evident from that, that moment in time. Um, and it's a little bit like trying to teach yourself chess by loading up a, a transcript of a game by Magnus Carlsen, for example, and then jumping to the end and then saying, aha, I see. So if you move your bishop two squares diagonally here, it's checkmate. Next time I play... I'm going to look for an opportunity to move my bishop two squares diagonally. And and so, I mean, that's not completely out of context like that. It's nonsense. And when you try to use the woodwind runs without all the rest of it, um, mm -hmm. it ends up being clunky and it doesn't make sense. So so working backwards like that didn't work for me. Um, you cited um, some texts before, and I've got someone on the shelf behind me. We've all read them. Um, and, you know, the Piston and the Adler and the, and the Rimsky-Korsakoff and all of that. Um, and I emerged... Um, I, I think I would have been thoroughly expert if I'd memorized it all, and I didn't. But if, if I memorized it, I'd be thoroughly expert on the you know the history of the trombone and um, you know <laughs> the, the exact range of every single instrument in the orchestra and uh, yep. you know tessitures in the works. Um, but then, if I had a trombonist sitting in front of me saying, "Hey, what do I play now?" It didn't actually help me get ideas for that. And so this in, then keeps coming back to well, the, the person that's in front of you, what are they trying to do right now? And so I, I was picturing. Um, that the tremendous blank slate that is your, your DAW when you've got your, your, your sample library that you've paid a fortune for, and it's probably not your first one. You've you probably bought a, a dozen of these because you it never sounds the way you're hoping, right? So you just oh, keep the on buying and the more. Next, and you get the email with the sale that you have to have. I mean, oh, you, you have know, to have. You have, you you have, have, to, have. to have. And it's Black Friday. And, and the, I mean, demo, the demos are, are composed by by wizards, and 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 so that they sound absolutely phenomenal. And and what you're writing doesn't. And and so the clear way to fix that is just to buy another one. So and I've, I've talked about that before. Um, and ended up having the epiphany that um, if you regard instruments and and libraries, for that matter, as as being um, ingredients, mm. then what we really need here, if you want to learn to cook with them, is not textbooks on the on the art of chef craft, or or the, the history of the yam or, or whatever. <laughs> what, what what you want is somebody who can actually give you a recipe. Uh, and, and say, look, if you combine these instruments, the, these ingredients in this way, you'll get this particular sound. And then to whatever extent that sound is useful or not is, is a judgment that you can make. But the point is now, if you understand that, you can summon that sound whenever you want. And it occurred to me I'd be much better off collecting recipes like this than I would be collecting yet another you know, piano library. And God knows I've got lots of those. Um, so, so that was the thing, and I, I started collecting these. I'm, I'm not um, vain enough to be pretending to come up with these recipes. I'm, I'm absolutely harvesting them from from classics and and from um, you know, film scores and wherever else. But there's a reason that these combinations are used over and over again, and that they work. Um, and if you do reproduce the instrumental combination, you you do reproduce the sound, and that's that's not orchestration recipes wizardry. That's just the common sense of following instructions. So it's a collection of these of these. Uh, instructions, if you like. And so. there are four volumes, by, by the way. <laughs> and, and I got to know, before moving on, yeah, 
I, I so appreciate your sense of humor. Uh, tell me you're a Monty Python and or oh, yeah. a Douglas Adams Hitchhiker's Guide fan. Uh, of course, of course. Oh, but yeah, isn't yeah. everybody? No. I, I noticed that. Uh, again, the Sorry. first 60 seconds of your first video, your seven-minute walkthrough, and we'll have a link to that. Uh, where you're like, well, here's your library. Now you're going to be perfect. And, well, what about this next one? Ooh, this next one. Yep. All that's missing is like the uh, the picture of, of you know, a god with the little moving mouth. That's like about all that's missing there. Um, but, uh, but anyway, uh, so there are four volumes to orchestration recipes. And the first two volumes um, are a little bit different than volumes three and four. Can you kind of break down the difference uh, in, in those volumes? Sure. I mean, I, I didn't know there was going to be a volume. I didn't know there was going to be a volume two when I was starting mm. all this. Um, but uh, the, the first two, are, they're just straight up recipes. And so they're, they're common. I really try to keep it to four steps or so, maybe up to six. Um, so we're, we're not reproducing the Rite of Spring here. Um, but but in that way, you can then you can assemble whatever it is you've just listened to fairly quickly, follow the steps, and then the key thing is go away and experiment with it. And so the recipes very deliberately come with with two examples, the one that we're kind of cooking together, and then there's a second one just to make the point that, look, here's a completely different set of notes. It's the same instructions. Um, note, it, it's, it's ballpark the same kind of sound. We've summoned that sound again. Um, and then the message there is now go away, add your own notes and harmonies and whatever, and um, you know you can kind of add this to your, your collection of recipes, and that your your usefulness to other people as a composer, um, which is really what you're trying to chase if you're trying to make this commercially viable, you've got to be useful to to other people, is really uh, limited by, and you can then expand upon how many recipes you've got. Um, and I'm not doing this as a way of please buy all mine. I'm, I'm saying that um, collect them from absolutely from wherever you can. So I, I got these in the first place by you know going through scores and 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 harvesting, and you can do that too. Um, this just saves you a bit of time. Um, yeah, there's, there's, and and I should say you're you're not sponsoring this episode. I reached out to you. I I yeah. bought these. You didn't you didn't gift me. You didn't comp me. No, any I wasn't, subs wasn't nice to you at all. No, no, no you're you're ter terrible. I mean, and and I'm only doing this. So, no, I'm just kidding. No, I, I plunked down my cash because I think this is absolutely worth it. I would love to play a clip from one of these recipes. A little a, a little clip from that. Would that be okay? Yep, sure. Okay. Um. And uh, so here is uh, here's an example of how these recipes work.
Yeah, I, I knew, <laughs> I knew instantly. Like again, the recipes, the idea that these are flavors, these are textures, these are sounds, these are this is how these things get put together. And it, I don't know, it was like it's so obvious, it's so obvious, and yet it, it took like you to come along and say, no, this this is how these things are assembled, and I instantly usable. So so those are the recipes. So volume one and two. Those are the recipes, and so it's video content. But there's also some downloads and everything for those for those volumes as well. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, it's a, you know MIDI files or whatever. I think of the people that want to go and you know play with it like a giant sandpit afterwards. Gotcha. Um, so yes, so they're, they're available as well. Yeah, and 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 the idea with these the recipes, and we'll talk about the uh, spices here in a second. The idea isn't to, like you said, isn't to just wholesale copy these and stick them in and and call it a day. How do you see folks getting the most mileage out of these recipes? That you you've got to go and play with them like anything else in music. We were talking before about trying to get your head around theory, and so if the if the theory concept you're trying to get your head around is whole tone scales, I mean it, it's one thing to sit down and to. Um, you know, to talk about the, the intervals and, and the fact that it's, you know, mirrors in every possible direction and whatever else. And again, they're all abstractions. Sit down at a keyboard and, you know, compose some things for a couple of days and you'll look at whole tone scales in a whole new way mm. uh, because you'll, you'll hear them. And, and so um, so the same thing with the recipes as, as well. That, that Yes, well, there's, there's lots of explanations there and help and chef's notes and whatever else so that you kind of get your head around how it all works. Um uh, or you can ignore all of that and just follow the steps so that so that there's the videos are very, deliberately very short for those for mm -hmm. people who are impatient just want to get on with it. <laughs> so you got your DAW open over here, recipe over open here. I'm hoping that people will stop listening to me very quickly and just want to go and try it. Right. Um, right. you know, and build build a few of those. My argument would be just like if you cook with a recipe a few times, you don't need the recipe after that. I'm, I'm, my hope is that people are not returning over and over to what I've done, that they they practice it a few times and then I'm I'm nicely redundant. After that, yeah. Well, it's, and then you start adding your own ingredients, and you say, "Well, you sure. know, if I'm making cookies, what if I use, you know, dark chocolate instead of milk chocolate? What if I yeah. switch out, you know, the sugar to brown sugar, and how does that affect the flavor and all of those kind of things?" So, yeah, they're, they're idea starters. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. so let's talk about volumes three and four. They take a different approach. You're calling uh, volumes three and four are spices. So uh, talk a little bit about how those are different from volumes one and two, and, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll listen to an example here in a second. Yeah, sure. So uh, the spices came about because I, the volumes one and two were harmony agnostic. I was, mm. I was trying to make the point that if you stick to the instrumental combinations, insert your own uh, melodies and harmonies, and you know, it's still essentially get the same sound. Um, but as I said earlier in the, in the interview, that I, I did get some people saying, "Hey, those particular harmonies you're using here, gee, it seemed to suit that. Um, how does that work?" And it was getting my head around trying to explain that um, without glazing over eyes immediately with, with with areas that they just wouldn't be comfortable with. The, the other reason, by the way, that I use uh, metaphors there is that I've got. I've got a pretty unholy collection of backgrounds for people coming into this. So I've got people who um, have been, uh, you know, jazz lecturers at, at university, um, right through to people who I, I had one person who contacted me complaining because they um, they can't read music and they can't play the keyboard and so they're having trouble following things. Um, so I guess there's kind of a base point where you, you'll need some skills before you can use it. But the point is that everywhere in between, and so we've got people coming in from a rock background or a classic background or whatever. And so I can't make assumptions about. Um, what sort of harmonic language they're familiar with. Mm. Um, and so I went through the classical school where, where we thought we knew a thing or two about music theory until <laughs> I went and visited the jazz school. Oh, right. And it, it's a whole, whole other thing. And so the, yeah. the music theory that we do is, is like 
mathematics in year three, mm-hmm. um, you know, versus university level mathematics for, for, for the jazz people. Um, so I'm steering clear of all of that. Yeah. And this was uh, the, the thing that excites me as a media composer yeah. are volumes three and four. And these were instant buys for me. Volume four, as we're recording this, volume four recently came out. I've already picked it up. I'm already halfway through it because you're talking about harmonic spices. You're talking about if you're wanting to get this effect and just like Volumes one and two are harmonically agnostic. Volume three and four are instrumentally agnostic. And as yes. somebody writing synth-based texture uh, or tension cues, or somebody writing something like a ukulele hand clap glockenspiel cue, you know, I can instantly get get out, uh, get ideas, get inspiration, and in unpacking these complex theoretical concepts uh, in a way that I, as somebody with a master's, and I'm like, wow, that's so mind-opening. So I would love to, to play an example. Uh, so this is uh, from uh, volumes three, uh, three and four, and this is an example of the spice palette. Now, the cue you just heard, you can get most of the way to reproducing just by copying the orchestration. But that particular sound does also depend heavily on a particular harmonic technique. Now, the technique is called dislocated tethering. It's a variation of chromatic mediants, and it doesn't matter if you have no idea what I'm talking about at the moment. The point is that once you know how to think with dislocated tethering, its thing is that it's really, really good at taking whatever orchestration you're using and making it sound exotic and otherworldly. So you hear it a lot in science fiction cues. Now, dislocated tethering is an example of a spice, which are harmonic techniques that add color and flavor. And one of the really powerful things about spices is that one spice can be used to flavor many different orchestrations. In fact, ultimately, you can use spices to come up with orchestrations of your own. So a second example, same spice, dislocated tethering, different instrumentation, different planet, you've definitely heard cues like this before. Or, again, same spice, different orchestration again, we get this. Now, the shift in focus for Volume 3 required a rethink as to the best way to present all of this, and that meant an entirely new format. There's no chef's notes or PDFs in the Spicer series. You won't need them this time. Each volume in the series is more than two hours of fully narrated videos. It was just easier to present all of this when I could actually talk about it and use animations or session captures or whatever. Now, it's still orchestration recipes at heart. So these videos are still packed with orchestrated examples and how to build them. It's just that everything's viewed through the lens of harmony this time, rather than just instrumental combinations. So rather than the focus just being on woodwinds, brass, percussion and strings, we'll also be talking about contrails, sunken minors or bisected tenths or serial parallel fifths or harmonic splats. 
And if you don't know what those techniques are, don't worry, because the videos explain them all and then show you walkthroughs of multiple orchestral builds for each. I got to tell you, one, one, one experiment I think I want to do, the reason I haven't started is I'm not brave enough to start this yet, is I want to take each of these spices and write a cue based around one spice. But I'm a little intimidated because they're so good. Uh, and, uh, and so, but yeah, like dislocated tethers and, and Lydian terraces. First of all, your naming is as somebody who enjoys good titles, chef's kiss. Oh, Hey, chefs. See, anyway, I'm not too doing yeah. uh, so, so, uh, are there any caveats, somebody approaching either the recipes or either the, um, either the spices or anything that you think folks should watch out for when using these, like how, how to best use them responsibly? Oh, look, I'll go back to what I was saying before that you, you, you can't just read through them and then mm. you know, declare that this is now part of your repertoire. You, you've, got to, you've got to go and use them. Like anything else, music practice-based, um, composing, hugely practice-based as well. Um, and yes, so that, that would be the, the key thing. Um, and I've, well, I've got lots of courses which I've um, signed up for and uh, never looked at. Mm. I've got courses that I've signed up for and looked at but never really practiced. And 0% of those courses are my across the content. Um, but as soon as I go and play with things, then, then it becomes part, and then you can re reuse it. So until you don't need it. So. And, the, and the last thing I want to touch on, uh, which is your perspective as primarily a concert composer, you know, or art, you know, and I've said on the podcast that what we're doing isn't necessarily art with a capital A, because we're making music that's going to go underneath, you know, uh, a, a cooking show or a slap fight on, you know, basic cable or whatever. That's not to diminish what we're doing. It's just to kind of keep perspective. But do you have any advice for media composers looking to incorporate these things and uh, looking to incorporate orchestral recipes or any just, um, I don't know, uh, the best way to approach these from a media film TV composer standpoint? Yeah, look, I mean, it, it probably sounds a little self-serving, um, but you'd need to go well beyond recipes in any case. You've you've got to be useful to other people. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I can remember years ago, my, my very first job, um, I got a job playing piano in a restaurant. And I, I wasn't very good at that, that style of piano playing. Um, but anyway, my second night there, uh, the guy who, who ran the joint uh, said what, he was having expecting the Venezuelan high commissioner was coming in. And what he wanted from me was an evening of Venezuelan dance music or something, because they like to dance as well. And I, I had a book of Billy Joel. And actually, that's all I had. I had a book of Billy Joel. <laughs> um, so, and, and so at that, at that point, for the rest of the evening, I, I became useless to him. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you are a media composer and you spend all your time absolutely nailing what it is to sound just like Howard Shaw, um, eventually you'll, you'll probably sound approximately like that. And absolutely every time somebody needs specifically that sound, your hat can be in that ring and you're going to be useless to everybody else for all the rest of the occasions. Um, and, and so it, it's, a, it's about how many styles can you actually sit down and smash out no matter how bizarre it, it, it actually is, um, which means that behind the scenes in advance, you've got to be across those and you have to practice them first because you don't want to practice them on the, on the, on the first gig. So... Yeah, so that's the thing, and that's tougher than than uh, being a a concert composer where you know you compose whatever you like, 
a lot more rewarding than being a concert composer because there is a fighting chance that some people might listen to it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know. Well, I mean, even, even then, I mean, you're still, uh, at the end of the day, you're still giving people what they're asking for. I mean, you could you can program a whole night of the most esoteric, aleatoric music, but if the patrons don't show up, you know, to the concert and they're not buying tickets and, you know, yeah. and they, they're complaining to to the to whoever the decision makers on are. I mean, at some point, I mean, even, I mean, even Mozart and Beethoven and, you know, Bach was, was a gigging church musician. Um, it still kind of translates, doesn't it? Oh, no, sure. I mean, you, you're accountable. I think the example you gave before of, um, uh, you know, evenings of aleatoric music, we, we had several decades of that where nobody seemed to care that nobody was showing up. Um, mercifully, that that's changed now. Um, and I was going going back to before where I was talking about being jealous of, of people coming through now, that the music composition degrees now um, just, just seem to be a whole lot more practical. Mm. Um, so, Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. I, and I think it's just, that's responsible. You know, if somebody's getting a degree in music, I think as, as a music educator myself, you know, I want to make sure that I am positioning students to be able to to make a living. I mean, if that's the goal of getting the music degree is to get a job, then I need to do everything I can. And for me, it's teaching them applicable skills, which means you're you're going to be in a DAW. You're going to know how to wrangle a piano roll as well as as well as you know you know actually notes on a piano. So. That's that's really good. Any what any plans for uh, volume five? I know volume four just came out. You're probably like, you know what? I don't oh, even no, want to think I mean, about it. it. it no, it, it's all well underway. Um, I mean, the challenge of all this is that, that orchestration is just kind of this colossal ocean, and I'm I'm trying to be reductive of all this, hmm. um, and I'm trying to um, be reductive without making the whole thing uh, trivial and, and not useful. So that there are some circles to square there, um, but there's a lot of topics that um, I would like to cover that we haven't touched on yet. The biggest problem, I'm going to run out of kitchen-related um, metaphors, <laughs> metaphors. And at some point. <laughs> so spices works okay, but I, I'm really stretching for the next one. Any so. any plans for uh, rhythm? Uh, well, for example, I mean, it's it's certainly not going to be complete if we're not talking about that. Um, and yes, so I, I think it's probably easy to, to maybe outline the things there aren't plans for. Um, mm. But my capacity to produce all of this is, is the limitation here. It, it does take me six months or to a year to produce each new volume there's, there's, because you know, you've got to compose it all and shoot all the videos and whatever. It ends up being a big job. Um, and we, we were talking about um, uh, day jobs and borrowed and whatever else. Um, when I, I, I spend all day doing orchestration recipes, but um, the, the, uh, when I'm not doing that, I'm running a, a large martial arts studio. Um, oh, uh, wow. here in Canberra, um, which you know, not, seems like nothing to do with music, um, but uh, you know that that's kind of the the, the flip side of all of this. So, no, I, I no, so. I think like centeredness and whole body well being and consciousness. No, I think it's I think it's all connected. I think creativity and personal wellness is absolutely connected. <laughs> well, and, and also I, th I think uh, music is a space that from time to time you you need to shift out of, so mm. that when you shift back into it, it's with enthusiasm and gotcha. You know all those other yeah. good things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Philip, thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, you can, uh, how can people find you if they if they want to uh, if they want to take a look at orchestration recipes or if they want to learn more about you? Oh, just just pop into orchestrationrecipes.com. Is you, you'll you'll find what you need there. Um, yeah, we'll so. have links in in the in the description and in the show notes. Philip, once again, thank you so very much. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Dave, it was great to meet you. Once again, a huge word of thanks to Philip for joining me today on the podcast. And like I said, we're going to have all of his links 
in the description below. Also, again, a huge word of thanks to the member subscribers of 52Qs who really do keep all of this going. See, you didn't hear any embedded ads for plugins, mattresses, or meal plans. We are 100% community supported by folks just like you who pay their actual real life money. So thank you so much. And we would love to have you joining the community. Again, is completely free and memberships start at around four bucks a month. Again, that's 52Qs.com. But that's going to do it for me this week. You definitely want to tune in next week where you, you, you see these guitars in the background. Like I have several guitars, but truth be told, I don't know how to play them really well. And I've actually kind of been afraid. So for the last couple of months, I have been pushing really hard into learning guitar. And to be honest, I kind of suck at it, but I'm also loving every minute. So we're going to talk about that next week. But I hope that you've had a really good week. And just remember, friends, that I know, trust, and believe that the universe has amazing plans just for you. Until next time, peace. The 52Qs podcast is copyright 2023 at 18 Studios, all rights reserved. The music played on the podcast is copyright of their respective owners and is used with permission and for educational purposes only. For more information, including joining the community and submitting your cue for consideration on the podcast, head over to 52Qs.com. Did you know that more and more libraries organize their catalogs as albums, complete collections of cues that all share a similar theme or purpose? But what does that mean to us, the composer? Do we have to write an album in order to get placed in a library? And if so, how do we get started and how can we even be sure we have that many ideas? Well, if this sounds like you, then the 52 Cues Album Accelerator is your answer. This self-paced program with over six and a half hours of video content, discussion threads, articles, and resources will guide you through the entire process of creating a production music album, ready for library usage. We give you tips on coming up with an album concept, finding inspiration for composing, cue form and structure, and navigating project management and deliverables, all while working towards finding and pitching to libraries who need what you're best at writing. Plus, you'll receive a 90-minute one-on-one Zoom session to listen through the cues in your album, go over your pitches, and discuss strategies for library placement. So head over to 52Qs.com slash accelerator for more information and to sign up today. Again, that's 52Qs.com slash accelerator.